Gresham College presents The Seven Rules of Foreign Exchange Markets by Avinash Persaud, Mercer's School Memorial Professor of Commerce. Thank you very much, Michael. Michael's one of the new stars of the foreign exchange market, so I'm very pleased uh, he's here today. I started in the city in September 1988 at uh, Phillips and Drew. Uh, it is 15 years ago, thanks for reminding me. Um, and my intention was not to stay in the city, but I'll admit it, I loved it. I, it was lucky, I, I was fortunate that I was working with some of the best-known analysts in the city, people like Stephen Lewis, Bill Martin, Perry Smith. I learned a tremendous amount from them. I loved it too, I'm afraid to admit, because it was easy back then. There wasn't a lot of research. Today there's information overload research overload, reams of faxes come out of the machine uh, every hour during the day. Back then, you could, in the morning, turn on Radio 4, catch the latest story, and pontificate about it merrily for the rest of the day. And I was a UK economist, uh, and that's how I got along. It was really very, very easy. And people were very indulgent. They were happy to listen to us pontificating about the UK economy and UK politics and, and how the various developments might impact the exchange rate or interest rates uh, and, and the markets. We weren't, uh, analysts weren't bribed back then to influence their views, but they were indulged, and for some of us that was even worse. But I think that even back in 1988, this cosy world was already beginning to change. Phillips and Drew was bought by UBS as part of that long movement of no more British-owned uh, investment banks. And uh, the gnomes of Zurich looked at me and said, you're going to be a currency analyst, no more UK economics for you. And I was appalled. Back then, the, the gilts market was the, the sort of gentleman's club of the financial market. We all knew each other, we all met each other in the Bank of England in those lovely uh, wood-panelled uh, rooms. The currency market, well, that was a second-hand dealer's market of the city. Uh, it really was, uh, you know, no, no pinstripe. If the gilt market was about pinstripes and Oxbridge accents, the currency market, the reputation was Millwall strip rather than pin, pinstripe suits. Uh, and, and it wasn't Oxbridge. Worse still, economists weren't indulged. Our theories weren't working. The idea that currency markets are driven by competitiveness, purchasing power parity, well, currencies seem to spend very little time at their purchasing power parity rate. Indeed, they spent 50% of the time moving rapidly away from them. And the forward market. People always say markets know best. Well, the currency markets have a forward market, pricing in where currencies should be in the future, and they were particularly bad at predicting foreign exchange markets. And in the void of this lack of a reliable theory, the various forms of voodoo finance were flourishing in the currency world. Technical analysis is very, very strong in currencies more so than in other fields. It was the uncertainty, it was the lack of our theories explaining things which kept many of these slightly odd faiths alive in currencies. Looking back, I didn't realize, but that actually presented, yes, a challenge, but a greater opportunity. 
to try and develop a framework for thinking about currency markets. A set of guideposts that will shed some light on how investors, clients, market participants, companies should think about exchange rates. It actually also meant I, didn't, I could avoid the perils of forecasting and focus on developing frameworks of analysis, frameworks of thinking. Forecasting really is a mugs game. For every triumph you have, which is quickly forgotten, there's many a failure that sticks with you, haunting you. I remember, I think it was my first trip to Dublin. It must have been about 1991. And I must have been intoxicated with uh, the beauty of Ireland and the Irish. And I remember saying, we stand on the foothills, one of those things that really sticks in your memory, we stand on the foothills of a mountainous dollar rally, I said, in August 1991. Later I discovered we really were on the summit of a pretty deep valley. Well, the dollar collapsed in August 92 to a record low, uh, and then further again in 1995. So it's far best to avoid forecasting and focus on frameworks of thinking, making life easier, identifying not where you think as some bold guess currencies are going to be in two years' time, but what are the conditions for the currency to rally? And what circumstances would the dollar rally or fall? What is the framework in which the markets would do whatever you think they're going to do? Now, before I offer you my seven rules of foreign exchange, a word or two about rules, because we live in a world today where everyone's trying to produce simplifying rules. Uh, you can read books about life called Who Moved My Cheese? A simple rule for coping with life. And lots of these rules and secrets and manuals, they really aren't worth uh, the paper they're written on. They don't stand up to the true test of a theory, the true Popperian test of a scientific theory. And I have to, I owe uh, insights into scientific theory and Sir Karl Popper uh, to my brother, the, the scientist in the family. And for those of you, uh, you may recall that Sir Karl Popper said, a good scientific theory is one which is falsifiable. The theory leads to predictions and these predictions can be tested. They can be seen to be false or true. So a good theory is falsifiable. And many theories and ideas, sadly, are not falsifiable. So I want to come up today with seven rules of foreign exchange which lead to some predictions, and hopefully these are predictively powerful. Now that's a long way from saying they're always right. That's simply saying they lead to a prediction, and these predictions are more often than not right, or certainly often enough to be useful. Let's look at the first rule of foreign exchange. The first rule of foreign exchange is that small e open economies manage their exchange rates. And the smaller they are, and the more open they are, the more they manage their exchange rates. Why? Well, a small open economy is very vulnerable to external shocks, to things happening outside their control, outside their influence, outside their foresight, derailing the domestic economy, derailing domestic policy. In the pursuit of stability, these small open economies try to insulate themselves from that shock 
by having some kind of fixed exchange rate or managing the exchange rate, dirty floating. That's the idea. What would that imply? That would imply one of the predictive implications of that rule. It would imply that when we see monetary unions, they'd be made up of small open economies. On occasions, they would link to a big economy. Well, that's what we see with the European monetary system. For those of you from the Caribbean, where I was born, uh, a monetary union even before the European monetary system, the Eastern Caribbean states, is a small monetary union of very small open economies. You don't see monetary unions of two big countries, the United States and Russia having a monetary union, the United States and Japan. You also, it implies that when these countries get together in a monetary union, here's one of the predictions, they become a large closed economy. Lots of small open economies become together a large closed economy and therefore there will be a change in policy. They will suddenly not care about the exchange rate anymore. So Germany cares a lot about its exchange rate, but EMU cares less, so the theory says, because it's no longer a small open economy. Indeed, that can be predicted. The Deutschmark was less volatile than the euro is today. And that is because, in terms of how far it moves, exchange rate misalignments and volatility, the large closed economy of Euroland cares less about the exchange rate. A third thing this theory predicts, if you remember back in the Asian crisis, the Asian countries, uh, their exchange rate pegs, they were small open economies, they had pegs, the pegs blew apart. They repented, they said, oh my lord, we made a big mistake, we will never again have exchange rate pegs. We now believe, they said, in exchange rate flexibility. Since then, there has been something like a $500 billion increase in their central bank reserves, which is not a sign of a free-floating exchange rate. And that's because, the theory says, whatever they say to you, these small open economies will never have a fully-floating exchange rate. They care too much about the exchange rate. It may not be a formal link. It may be a implicit, a hidden, a secret. But they will have some kind of link. The first rule of foreign exchange is small open economies manage their exchange rates. Now, it highlights the role of policy in exchange rates. I want to talk uh, a fair amount about that today. Uh, and it's quite important because in currency markets in particular, the only group of people who are scorned more than economists are policymakers. But in fact, policy is very important for exchange rates. Now, the second rule of foreign exchange is that currencies go to that point which provokes a policy response. And why is that? And that's because exchange rates are political. Exchange rates don't make the cake, the economic cake that we consume, any bigger or smaller. But it changes the size of your slice. And that happens between countries and within countries. A country with a competitive devaluation is trying in the short term to take more economic growth from the country it exports from. Within a country, if there's an exchange rate depreciation, it's good for the manufacturers, it's good for the producers, it's not that good for the consumers who face higher prices. Exchange rates are ultimately have political impact 
in the, in the allocation of wealth and income of producers versus consumers, country A versus country B. And policy can influence exchange rates. So no wonder exchange rates are political. And we've seen that. We've seen the way the second rule has applied. When Wim Dusenberg said in 1999 as the euro was falling, I don't care about the exchange rate. The euro continued to fall until he did care about the exchange rate. Currencies fall to that point which provokes a policy response. Some of you who look at currency markets will be familiar with the strong dollar policy. Ever since June 1995, the US have been talking about we want a strong dollar policy. The birthplace of that idea was the previous weakness of the dollar. The dollar fell to a record low in April of 1995 against the Deutsche Mark, June against the, Euro, uh, the yen, and that, that movement provoked the policy response. I think that in Dubai 2003, we have seen evidence of a policy statement. We've seen evidence that the Americans are saying, our producers, our manufacturers are worried. The dollar went to a point which has provoked a policy response. And that is why the currency markets today are weakening the US dollar significantly. The next rule of foreign exchange markets, the third and, and perhaps most subtle, I may not convince you all about this one, it's a difficult one. How do you interpret what central bankers have to say? If policy matters, interpreting central bankers is very important. One of the primary jobs of an analyst in the city when I was growing up is try to interpret what central bankers have to say. And central bankers know about this, they respond to this, and they have mastered the art of talking a lot and saying very little. So we're often asked, what does a statement mean? And so here is a rule of how to interpret what central bankers say. A statement is significant if the opposite could have been said. If the opposite could not have been said, the statement is irrelevant. When the central bankers say, we want stable exchange rates, this means absolutely nothing, because they will never say to you, we want unstable exchange rates. When a central banker says, we want exchange rates to follow the fundamentals, it means nothing, because they will never say, we want exchange rates not to follow the fundamentals. But when they say we want more flexible exchange rates, that is important because they could have said we want more stability. When they say that we want a more competitive exchange rate, uh, that is also important because they could have said we want a stronger exchange rate. So ask yourself, could they ever have said the opposite? And if they can't say the opposite, it's a fairly meaningless, anodyne statement. A a, uh, a practice they have perfected. Now, rule four of the seven rules of foreign exchange. Current accounts do matter, but not all the time. Indeed, the rule here, this rule can be rewritten as think of a country's current account deficit in the same way as your bank manager thinks of your overdraft. And indeed, they are very similar concepts. A current account deficit is a country that's spending more than it's earning, according to national income accounting. Same as your overdraft. Now, a small overdraft is okay, especially if your monthly paycheck will cover it. 
a big deficit, a big overdraft, because you are investing, is permissible. That's why we lend so much money to homeowners. But a big and rising deficit, financing consumption, does not work. It doesn't work at home with a bank manager. It doesn't work in international finance. Now, the problem is that investment, investment booms, investment surges. Investment moves much more quickly than consumption. So quite often, a current account deficit begins life as part of an investment boom, but ends up as a huge deficit financing consumption. And so be very wary, this rule predicts, of those finance ministers who say to you, don't worry about my current account deficit, we're financing investment. Do you remember Nigel Lawson? He said this in late 1980s, uh, the UK was running a large current account deficit, and at the beginning it was financing investment. But then the investment boom failed and crashed, and we were left with a big current account deficit, financing consumption, and sterling tumbled. America has its modern day Nigel Lawson, someone hailed in his time as a genius, uh, but today only embarrassingly remembered. Uh, and his name is Sir Alan Greenspan. He will be the future Nigel Lawson of America. And he said, don't worry about the US current account deficit, it's financing investment. Well, it was two years ago. Today, the US current account deficit is financing very large consumption. Defense consumption in part, but also generally consumption. That is not going to last. What is the predictive power of this rule? Go back to the major financial crises. Next, uh, EMS, in the EMS crisis of 1992, there are many things going on, but the countries with the biggest current account deficits of all the countries in Europe, Italy, Spain, the UK, are three countries which fell the furthest in the EMS crisis. Mexico, 1995, big fiscal deficit, yes, massive current account deficit, the country, the currency collapses. Asia, in 1997, they didn't have a fiscal problem, big current account deficits, which began life as financing investment, ended up financing consumption. I would say the U.S. is in that position today. Now, the first four rules of foreign exchange, I've told you, are very much about the foreign exchange market. The remaining rules are about investor behavior and can be applied more broadly to other markets. And uh, so rule five is partly about current account deficits and partly about bond markets. It's what happens to the currency of a country which has a large current account deficit financed by bonds. So big current account deficit financed by foreign investors buying their bonds. And the rule is that high and falling interest rates are good for your currency, but low and rising interest rates are bad. And this is very interesting because it goes counter to traditional economic thinking. Traditional economic thinking would be that as the economy begins to run out of steam, your interest rates were high and now they're coming down, your currency should be falling. It doesn't happen. When the US economy turned at the peak, interest rates began falling. This was great for bonds. Foreign investors piled into the US dollar. The dollar continued to rally as the US economy's rally petered out. What happens on the other side? The economy has been weak. Recovery is suddenly there. Interest rates are low and rising. Economic, economic theory tells you you should buy that currency. It doesn't happen. The currency falls. I learned that the hard way 
1994. Like many forecasters back then, I had painfully stood by the U.S. economy and the dollar. The recovery was finally there. February 94, they're about to raise interest rates. I'm thinking, at last, the dollar's going to rally. It collapses. Why? Well, it occurred to me, something quite important occurred to me, which was that in economic theory, sometimes we forget about the actual mechanics of what's going on. So the theory says higher interest rates should be good for the currency. But what do I buy in February 1994? U.S. interest rates, deposit rates are 3%. They're too low to buy a deposit rate. Bond yields are rising. You don't buy bond markets when yields are rising. The prices fall. Equities are falling because as bond yields rise, it reduces the relative value of equity markets. There was no instrument to buy. So low and rising interest rates may be the right economic conditions for currency to rally, but there's no instrument any investor wants to buy. High and falling rates are best, low and rising are bad. Please don't learn that the hard way as I did. Now, the next rule. True diversification, rule six, true diversification in financial markets is not about spreading your investments across geography, across assets, across markets or instruments. It's about spreading your investments across risk. You could have more diversification in one country if you spread your investments across risk than if you'll spread your investments all over the world. And why is that? Because there are two factors that determine your willingness to buy an instrument. One is the fundamental risk of that instrument. And the other one is your risk appetite. The problem is that fundamental risks move slowly. Your risk appetite moves quickly. We have a poor tolerance for loss often. One loss makes us reduce our risk appetite. So as our risk appetite falls, we want to reduce our exposure in anything that's risky. I love this, in fact, uh, in one of the currency devaluations. If you do a study, you find the best time to buy a currency is the day after it devalues. Countries seldom devalue two days in a row. It does happen, but they seldom devalue two days in a row. And yet, what happens the day after the currency is devalued. Does the investor call up and say, buy me more Mexico, please? No, he says, get me out of anything that looks like Mexico. Their risk appetite falls, and anything which is risky comes down. So in the short term, you might diversify across geography, but you find that it is risk that you need to be diversified across. That's why, over the short term, U.S. Treasuries and the Swiss franc are highly correlated. Long term, they're not. In the short term, they're both safe havens. It's why U.S. junk bonds and the Australian dollar are highly correlated. They're both risky instruments. They're not correlated over the long run. They are in the short run, in periods of falling risk appetite. Shifts in risk appetite are often the main avenue of financial contagion. We've talked a bit about that in uh, previous lectures. Let me come to the seventh rule of foreign exchange. And I learned this rule. Again, uh, I find crises, I've sometimes been described as a crisologist. I love crises. 
They are wonderful environments for the analyst observing, not for the people suffering, of course, to observe what's going wrong with our theories. And uh, I remember quite a few crises. Uh, the economist comes into the room, it, it's tense, and there's been a crisis. I say this all as, as an economist myself. Please don't uh, feel I'm criticizing uh, the profession uh, overly. Uh, the economist comes into the room, everyone's waiting in bated breath, what's he going to say? Which markets do I buy? What do I sell? And he or she goes through the fundamentals. Unfortunately, it's largely he. They go through the fundamentals. Here are the countries that are fundamentally strong, you should buy those. And here are the countries fundamentally weak in the crisis, they're going to be a disaster. And he gets it completely wrong. And I've learned that what happens in a crisis is that people don't sell what they don't have. And they don't have the bad stuff because it's bad. In fact, what they do have in their portfolio is stuff they thought was good. So in fact, the countries that do badly in a crisis are all those that we previously thought were really good. It is the good that suffers in a crisis, or what we previously thought was good. Of course, as human beings, we have wonderfully creative minds. We find reasons why they're no longer good. And that's why they've gone down, post hoc. But people don't sell what they don't have. They sell what they have, and what they have are good things. You don't have in your portfolio lots of bad things. You don't go around saying, I've got all these bad things in my portfolio. I've got them to sell them when the crisis hits. No, you've got all the good stuff in your portfolio. That's a very important rule. In a crisis, it is the markets where people thought were good that fall the most. And that's an important rule because it actually goes against modern-day risk management. Because what this says is you should uh, be very wary about positioning of markets. Market behavior today will be a function of the current positioning. People will sell what they have. Not some correlation that occurred in the past based on past positions. It's uh, what are the predictive aspects of that rule? Well, the extreme point, which is almost extreme to ridiculous, in the crisis, South Korea does a lot worse than North Korea. No one's got North Korea. Which economy would you back in the long run as being fundamentally better? India and Singapore are very proud of how they withstood the Asian financial crisis when nobody was there. I don't, I'm not entirely sure that was something to be proud about. The stepping stones of the Asian crisis, Malaysia, Korea, Russia, Brazil, there is no economic link between those countries. The stepping stones was those were the markets people had. Now, I said there were seven rules of foreign exchange, but there is an eighth rule. And the eighth rule is never say never. Particularly important for currencies, but I think all financial markets. And that's because when credibility is most strained, governments are most adamant. We will never devalue, they always say the day before the devaluation. They can't say, well, we might do, pressures are quite strong, because the devaluation will come straight away. So they are, when credibility is most strained, they are most adamant. And you can see that in other walks of life, perhaps with the UK government today and Iraq. When credibility is strained, we get very adamant. But you see that in, in foreign exchange markets too. Boris Yeltsin said the day before the Russian default, we will not default. In Argentina, before the devaluation, we are sticking to the currency conversion. Uh, we, don't, we can go back to the United Kingdom. I don't know how many of you in this room uh, will remember Prime Minister Wilson before the 67 devaluation. We will never devalue. When credibility is most strained, we get most adamant. Be very wary. Never say never. 
Let me come to a conclusion by saying I think there are two interesting themes about these rules of foreign exchange. And I think it's really about putting the political back into political economy. I think we've forgotten that that was the name of the original subject. Indeed, in rereading Adam Smith, the founder of economics, one is surprised today about how much he talks about politics, how much he talks about vested interests, about trying to deal with these forces, about what I may call today saving capitalism from the capitalists, about how you need uh, to think very carefully about the political interests. And exchange rates, I think, interestingly, are very political because on the, they're one of the few instruments that's about dividing the cake, not building the cake. You cannot, in the long run, produce economic value by devaluing your exchange rate. You can, in the short run, produce some benefit, but you're producing some cost too. Producers benefit versus consumers. One country benefits today versus the other. And so, I think one of the things we should remember in thinking about these rules is the political behind the word economy. In economics, a subject I love dearly, a fascinating subject, a subject that is about the world's biggest challenges and how we might try and overcome them. We do have a danger, though, that the tools have become the analysis itself rather than things to help us analyze the problems. Thank you very much indeed. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.